Hello, welcome to the Investors Chronicle Alpha podcast. I'm James Norrington, Investors Chronicle Alpha. You'll notice uh, John Human's away this week. He's actually off working on a very exciting project. Uh, the Investors Chronicle is relaunching our website and the magazine. Um, so that's keeping John very busy. Um, but we still have the other half of the dynamic duo on the podcast. Phil Oakley is here. How are you doing, Phil? Uh, very good. Thank you, James. Excellent. Uh, good to see you. It's been a while. Um, nice to see you keeping well. So there's a lot to talk about though this week. Markets have been fairly flat, but this is a chance perhaps to take a step back and think about the state of the economy where there hasn't been that much good news. Um, we've seen uh, you know, the UK public borrowing. Um, the government spent $260 billion more than it brought in um, in the last six months. Um, and a survey from the Office of National Statistics, uh, 14% of companies they spoke to think that they, there's a chance that they, they could go bust. Doesn't look good for the UK economy, Phil, at the moment. Uh, no, you know I think what's been going on, and it's a theme not just with the economy, but also with um, you know the companies that are in in the economy, is that what you tend to find is that a downturn finds a lot of things out. You know, it's the classic sort of you know you you find out who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And you know I've held held the view for a long time that you know the UK is a is a very fragile economy. It doesn't produce enough. It consumes too much. It's reliant too much on house prices and credit. And the government finances have been a mess since the financial crisis. Now they keep on spending more than they take in in taxes and we're not really, really well prepared for, for something like this. And if you look at the, you know, the relative state of the UK economy... It has taken a much bigger hit being, you know, being predominantly a service economy um, to to sort of more mainstream manufacturing economies such as Germany, China, uh, the United States has had a lot, uh, a lot smaller hit. And we are really a, a bit of an outlier here. And it's um, it's not a good picture. No. One of the things that, um, that you've always um, highlighted is is uh, the investors really should should have a look at what's happening with the pound. I mean, at the moment, next week we'll have more to talk about when it comes to Brexit. But the pound has has been sort of fairly sanguine in in, in the run up to next week. It's still it's about one dollar thirty one dollar thirty three uh, one euro twelve at the moment. And gilt yields are up slightly at point three percent. These are these are things to watch. And uh, what are the risks? Because with with the borrowing and the weakness of the UK economy, a, a run on the pound is something is a real possibility. Yeah, I think I think the, there are there are two things that investors need to be need to bear in mind is that. It seems it seems that the bond market has been tamed. You know, if you have a, a central bank that can print money and can mop up the borrowing that governments take on when they when they spend more than they take in, then you can keep a lid on on gilt yields, on on market interest rates. Now, the problem with that is that if if that becomes too much and you are printing up a lot of currency, then the, the risk is, is that you damage the value of the, of the currency that you're printing up, so the pound. So you create more pounds, you destroy the value of the pound, the purchasing power of the pound. The thing about currencies is that they are, they are relative. Um, and when you've got lots of, lots of countries trying to do the same thing, um, America being the, the, the obvious one, then 
you know, the relative value between, say, the pound and the dollar may, may not move as much. Um, but sterling, you know, is certainly not not a strong currency. Um, it doesn't really have a lot a lot going for it at the moment. It has rallied a bit, um, primarily on dollar weakness and some uncertainties there. And, you know, we mentioned the B word at the start, possibility that some sort of trade deal is done. And that leads to some sort of relief rally in, in, in the value of the pound, which is which is possible. But but long term, I, I, I'm quite bearish on the pound. I think that um, the, the strength of the UK economy, its continued tendency to suck in imports rather than produce its own stuff um, is not good for the good for the long term value of the pound. Uh, well, there'll be a lot more to talk about on this next week uh, with um, as, as the, the Brexit negotiations come to a head. Um, but moving to more generally to the, the, the point of value and what it means to the stock market, we saw with the, the good vaccine news la- last week's rally, um, there's, there's the so-called uh, rotation into value as an investing style um, by investors you know, around the world. And um, that, that potentially, uh, you know, it sort of seems to fly in the face of a few secular factors which go against value investing. I mean, if, if I could just list a list a couple, um, there's the idea that, that big tech companies are now permanent monopolies. Um, there's just the fact that with interest rates so low, um, the discount rate for earnings out in the future is lower. So that favours long-term growth companies. And then, you know, as we're seeing um, environmental, social governance, ESG, sustainability investing, uh, a lot of value investments, which were predicated on measures like price to book, um, a lot of the assets are stranded by the, the secular changes um, that's going on in the economy. So there, there seems to be quite a lot going against against value investing. And, and I know that you're very much a, still a, a growth and quality man for the long run. You know, I've banged on about the price of quality growth stocks, the valuation of, of quality growth stocks for the last two to three years now. And I, and I think they are expensive and have become more expensive but they do have they do have you know two things going for them in that they are very robust businesses with strong competitive positions and they have the ability to grow and investors like them because they don't they don't tend to blow up and one of the biggest biggest risks that you run as an investor is you know you come in one morning and you open up your screen or and and whatever whatever and you find that you've got a company that's a profit warning and it shares are down twenty five percent now that kind of damage to a stock and to you know more than more than a few stocks in your portfolio is very difficult to to recover from and it's very difficult if you're running a long term portfolio um with a long time horizon and you're looking to compound the value of that setbacks like that can can throw your whole plan your whole investment portfolio and what it's trying to achieve under a butt and this is this is the risk that you have with with so-called value stocks is that you have companies that are cheap or look statistically cheap or cheap on you know earnings measures cash flow measures but but usually the market doesn't give a free lunch. The only time the market really gives a free lunch is like something like March or 
2009, 2003 maybe, when you just get a general market sell-off and good quality businesses can be bought for reasonable prices. In other, in other times, low valuations are usually correlated with higher, higher business risk. So it's a case of saying, look, this is cheap, but it needs to be cheap to compensate for the risk. And the risk is that the, the business behind the shares has has some has an issue with it, which uh, means that it may not be as reliable as you want it to be. So, I mean, you've made some changes to the the fantasy SIP. Um, again, you're sort of moving further away from um, uh, this is the the portfolio that, that you run um, in your in your weekly alpha reports. You're trying to move away from from UK companies for for some of the reasons that we've discussed um, with general bearish feeling on the UK, but you've added another quality US company to the fantasy sip, uh, Procter and Gamble, for that reason. Even though you know in the past you've um, you've said that you're very bullish about um, own branded products, and obviously P and G is a is a big brand uh, consumer staples company. Yeah, I am still long long term bull of private label, but I think you know. <laughs> If I, if I look at the way that, you know, the whole thing about this fantasy sit, which is part of the newsletter, is just a sort of live weekly process of a of a private investor running a portfolio that isn't trying to shoot the lights out, but is just trying to sort of quiet, quietly sort of grow, you know, a bit more than inflation without a lot of ups and downs. And... So one of the key themes of the stocks that are in it are, are shares that are very, very steady. So they're highly profitable businesses, but they, they maintain a very steady business performance throughout economic cycles. So I, I spend a lot of time looking at how, how businesses perform in recessions, which means that this year, 2020, is actually an incredibly valuable year for investors because they will learn so much about companies, because companies tend to tell you a lot more when things are going badly and you learn bits about the business that you wouldn't learn about when perhaps things are going well and they cover up certain risks. But P&G has, has done a lot of good work in turning itself around. There's nothing undiscovered about it. You know, it's, it's a massive company. But what it's been doing is ditching a lot of tired brands. It's got rid of, you know, dozens and dozens of, of brands and is focusing its energy behind core brands, which is which is a theme that you've seen a lot in a lot of consumer goods stocks. The other thing that, that I like about it, it's something that I've had on the sort of watch list for the last six months, is that it's spending a lot more time now in product development, part, partnering with young businesses, entrepreneurs who are developing new products, almost as like a sort of laboratory where it's developing new products, which sort of niche new markets to go into. That, too, I think is, a, is a something that will make the business more agile. But then you just can't get away from the fact that, you know, it is a business that is very predictable, has some fantastic consumer brands, high top-end consumer brands that – consumers put in their trolleys every week and it's a fantastically profitable cash generative business that can be bought you know at quite a reasonable valuation you know it's like four and a half percent free cash flow yield 
you know, when interest rates are zero. Um, it's the kind of sort of low volatility investment that I'm quite happy, that I would be quite happy just to tuck away. And that's that's the main reason why it's gone in. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that is, you know, the tech end and healthcare businesses and the stuff that everyone's flocked to over the last two, three years is now looking really expensive. And I just think that there's a bit more of a sort of relative opportunity. You haven't got the growth, but I think, you know, you're always trying to play the trade-off. Gro- growth is more important than valuation. That's one of the key lessons, I think, that we've we've learned as investors, or hopefully some of us have learned later than others, including me. But that's one of the key lessons, is that growth is what develops. But there can be a night, you know, it's about getting the balance right. And I think Procter & Gamble's got quite a nice balance there now. So it's it's interesting with the, with the balance with growth and value. So the, I think the tech stocks on a on a Schiller PE, um, so cyclically adjusted uh, uh, price earnings ratio, uh, that's uh, that's something like ninety four times the the top five stocks in America, the sort of the bastions of growth. But um, the Chinese companies, so the ten cents and the uh, the Alibabas are on about thirty times their their core business. And and I'm just, we've spoken about internationalising the fantasy SIP. Is there? Um, are you interested at all in the in the ADRs or the, or the even the Hong Kong listings of companies like that? Not really, not really. I've always I'm always a little bit. I'm I'm, I'm sort of you, you know UK America. I think there's the scope for maybe a, a couple of couple of European stocks. I'm not against, you know, I think, you know, these companies like Tencent and Alibaba are, you know, fabulous businesses. They have tremendous amounts of of uh, of power in in their markets. Um, I'm just a little bit wary of them. I'm just just a little bit wary of that, that, that area of the market, that geography. And I think, you know, I feel happier owning owning Amazon um than the, the Alibaba and in terms of like the gaming exposure um which is obviously you get through something like Tencent I, I've got I'm playing that through um Frontier Developments which is a you know an aim listed smaller UK stock which actually Tencent has a has a holding in that so the answer to your question is no um but it's a fair point and you know nothing nothing is um out of consideration, I just staying something which is more easier for a private investor to sort of sort of do, and I'm sort of sticking to sort of UK, US, European stocks where I can. So moving to a, to a company that that you do hold uh, in the in the quality shares and the fancy sip, uh, Croda. Um, it's a different type of dilemma for a quality investor. It's it's a company that you've written about in the past and described as a quality trap. It's recently um, yeah. paid quite a lot of money, if you think, uh, for a company called Ibachem, um, which is a Spanish uh, private equity-owned business, which uh, you you highlight as a as a red flag buying off of PE guys who are good, know how to get a good deal. And 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 this is a company which uh, which is it's it's perfume and, and fragrance products and uh, and uh, and it um, it has a has a good foothold in 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 emerging markets. So I looked at this, your report, and I, I pulled out sort of three or four bullet points. The fact that it, it, it um, it's natural ingredients that a lot of uh, a lot of what what Crowder, also Crowder's main business is, is agricultural products, and uh, it's a lot of uh, 
a lot of natural ingredients, which which for me is uh, rather than oil-based stuff. So for an ESG perspective going forward, that, that's got to be a ballpoint for the company. And this acquisition gives it more clout in emerging markets. And it's also just um, just got a contract with Pfizer um, to help with ingredients for the, for the vaccine. So there are a few ballpoints. So you're point in the past has been you've been skeptical about the growth prospects for Croda. So I just wanted to, to it was an interesting company. I just wanted to, to you to tell us a bit more about it. I, I think Croda is a great business. <laughs> it fits a lot a lot of a lot of criteria that I like. You know, it's it's a sort of specialist, niche business and it's a sort of it's an enabler. So it, it, it's a it's a problem solver and an enabler for its customers. So it puts ingredients into things like skin creams, beauty products. Um, it does things like um, you know crop protection products, and does a lot of ingredients that go into things like vaccines, which is obviously a big big topic at the moment. It's a very clever business. Um, it's got some very clever products that are patented um have good positions with with their customers and are very profitable and it also has a very good culture um i like i like companies that um have direct selling models so they cut out distributors they cut out middlemen and they they sell directly to their customers and they get to know their customers better than if they outsource it to a distributor. Not, you know, you can get some companies that work with distributors and customers and, and do quite well. But generally speaking, I like this kind of direct direct selling model. So there is a lot to like about Croder in terms of how its business is put together and what it does. The key issue, I think, the key problem that this company has had in the last sort of couple of years is the ability just to grow from what it has, you know, what is known as organic growth. And it's been a real problem. And, um, you know, you can have great businesses that are highly profitable, but you need, I mean, the ideal business is a highly profitable business that does things that other, not many other companies can. It's on a good valuation and it can grow. Now, finding all three in these markets is very, very difficult. Um, Croder, is, Croder is a great business that's highly valued, but it hasn't been growing much. But the shares have still done quite well because you know people have flocked to this kind of investment in recent years because they, they feel safe with it. And I think what concerns me is that the, the deal, the, the business that they're buying, Ibikem, is looks a great fit it, you know it ticks a lot of boxes it takes them into new product markets so it complements their, their 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 personal care business but it moves them into home care so things like you know fragrances that might go in washing powders dishwasher tablets fabric care and it takes them into food and drink flavorings and also, that it shifts the geographic footprint. Eighty-five percent of the sales of this business are in emerging markets. Does that solve the growth problem? No. Shifting to EM. A bit, a bit. You know, it, 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 they're, they're buying. They're buying a business which has a very good historic track record of growth. It's a business that has grown its sales by fifteen percent a year compound for the last decade. Now let let's see if that continues. You know, my 
I am deeply suspicious and cynical about private equity, perhaps over, overly so, because I've seen so many instances of of, of them getting out. They, they have a knack of getting out while the going's good at a top valuation and leaving nothing on the table. And um, I'm not real. I'm not really a fan, and I I don't like to see companies buying off private equity because private equity usually legs businesses over in my opinion and if you look at the price that that Croder has paid for this business yeah it looks a great business on paper and of course you know they say oh well it enhances earnings per share well when you when you live in a world where interest rates are zero you don't need to get much of a return on investment to enhance earnings per share the the key thing that investors should look for when they when they're appraising a company that's making an acquisition is the is the return on investment. So you look at the profit that they acquire versus the the price that they've paid for the business. So so at the moment, Croder is paying twenty times EBITDA. So you know, obviously EBITDA isn't, isn't even a proper measure of profit. But what it, what what it's saying is that I mean that's a punchy multiple. Although, you know, not too dissimilar from the stock market valuation of Croder itself, actually. But that's by the by. And I think the, the thing for me that I find a little bit concerning is that they is that Croder say that it's going to take them five years to for the return on this business to beat what's known as their cost of capital. And their cost of capital will probably be something around eight eight percent or before tax, probably ten percent. So they're paying, you know, seven hundred and fifty or sixty million, something, something like that. Thing. It's something between seven thirty and seven sixty. I can't remember. And they're getting thirty five, thirty six million of EBITDA. Well, they need to be getting about seventy five million of operating profit. So EBITDA has got to be higher than that. So you're looking at, you know, a business that's going to have to double its operating profit in the next five years to to make an acceptable return on investment. And that's where the risk that's where the risk comes for shareholders in any company that makes an acquisition like this. And it, and it's no no different from you and I, you know, the discussion we were having fifteen minutes ago about the price of quality growth shares. Um, you can pay a high price for quality growth share and the share price can still get more expensive. The problem is, is when you buy a business, you, you, you fly or die by the business performance. There is no magic mar- you know, stock market that can get you out of a hole. You, know, you have to get the business to perform well. Now, if this business performs like it has done, then Crowder may make an acceptable return. And I suppose, you know, Maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little bit too pessimistic, but I think given what given what the company's got with its organic growth, and it's not, it's maybe looking to acquisitions to you know to grow instead, and that's fine as long as you pay the right price for them. And this looks like the wrong price to me. Okay, so in terms of buying and selling at the right and wrong price, uh, so it, it has been a challenge. I think um, if if you have a um, a cognitive bias tick, Phil, it may be. Uh, I think you said that one of the things you've learned uh, over the last year 
um, has been to not focus too much on valuation. Growth is all important. Um, Halma, uh, a company that that you've sold out of, and I think you said um, that you regretted selling out of it in this in this week. Um, and, and also a company, I mean, which you've written about before, the Games Workshop, which you sold out of, and um, and that has subsequently bought back in at. What do you think you've learned from from these companies um, in your portfolio management um, and uh, and you know the way that you're managing the the UK quality shares and the fancy sip going forward. Yeah, I've, I've I've learned a lot, and I think I think we've all learned a lot, and I think that COVID and and the lockdowns has exposed things about businesses that perhaps people like me and lots of other investors didn't expect, and. And and they they've exposed vulnerabilities. I mean, you can you can say that it's a you know an extreme one-off event that's not likely to happen, but it but I think it's you know it's shown fra- it's, it's shown frailties. So I, I think you know I've owned I've, I've had businesses in the portfolio which you know have proven to be weaker or not as strong as as I expected. The main lesson that I learned. And I and I've, I suppose, continue to learn is is that I think don't don't sell a business that's doing well and is growing just because it's overvalued. And that that was a mistake I made with Games Workshop. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, Games Workshop, you know, is a very difficult business to predict. Um, it depends on very much on. The release schedule of new games, new products. It just happens to be in a great spot at the moment, where where the where the, the there's a tailwind behind this business, and it's been very well managed. And you also have a lot of operational gearing in the business, which gears gears to the upside and the downside. And I think there's a lot of good things going on at Games Workshop. The more I've looked at it, the more I like it. I think the growth there is a lot more sustainable. Than perhaps I I thought it was. There's still a visibility issue, but at the moment the wind is blowing in the right direction, and and the, the surprises are likely to be good. It won't always be that way. Halmer Halmer is slightly different. Halmer is it's a very good business. Again, it's one of these niche problem solver. It gets into you know critical areas of the economy, things like safety, the environment medical type businesses where there's good long-term structural demand and it's almost run like an investment company really they they buy companies and they let the management just get on with it and they've been very good at buying businesses that, that have got reasonable rates of organic growth and they they make good acquisitions and they make good returns on investment from those acquisitions i think halma I mean, Halmer's still on me. You know, it's still on about forty-five times earnings, and you know, even if even with an earnings recovery, it comes down to about thirty-seven times earnings. And a lot of the underlying growth is coming from from acquisition. You'll get some earnings recovery in the next next couple of years, um, but I think I have less. Even though the, even though the shares have performed quite well this year, I have less regret about Halmer. Than I than I did about Games Workshop. I, I think the quality of growth at Games Workshop is better, 
than than it is at Halmer because it's it's all, it's coming from existing assets at um, at Games Workshop, and I think you should always <clears throat> prefer businesses that can grow from what they already have rather than buying buying growth. Um, that's not to say that that Halmer isn't isn't a really good business. It is. I just think its share price has got a little bit out of touch with the fundamentals behind it. I certainly wouldn't 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 be in a rush to buy it back. Okay, great. Um, and just uh, I think uh, to, to to wrap up, really, um, as we said, we're not going to talk too much about Brexit this week because we'll have more to talk about next week. Uh, but um, as, as 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 a portfolio manager, you've moved the portfolios. You said in the report you're happier with the portfolios now than you were at the start of the year. How confidently do you feel placed that you know that you can ride out um, uh, whatever's going to happen? I have no idea. In, 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 yeah, the truth. I, I think. Economies are important. You know, people people say that stock markets aren't the economy, and that is true. But company profits are geared to the economy, and company profits determine share prices, at least over over the long run. We we can't you know we can't spend a lot of time worrying about the economy too much. I think you have to focus if you're. I think you have to focus on individual businesses, the markets that they're in, the products that they sell, and how well how well positioned they are to do that. That does require some consideration of the economies that they operate in. And obviously, if you've got a lot of people out of work who haven't got money in their pockets, they're going to be buying less of what some companies make. So you've got to bear that bear that in mind. But um you know what what will be will be you know companies can adapt hu- humans can adapt and um i think that you should never underestimate the ability of businesses and humans to yes take a setback but actually come back come back better from it and i i think you know if i look at the sort of companies i prefer you know, mainly overseas earners, overseas shares or, or, or UK listed shares with overseas earners. Yes, there is a risk that if we get a rally in, in the pound, that you will get some kind of hit. But there's not not really a lot I can do I can do about it if that's my if that's my if I have my belief in the companies that I look for, that's something that I have to accept. And I think that you know the the alternative is to buy um, UK companies with with UK earnings streams, um, which take away take away that currency risk. And I don't really like a lot of of what I see in, in, in the UK market for for the style of investing that I like, which is sort of hopefully trying to hang on to them for you know more than five minutes. I think I think the UK market is very interesting. I think there are shares in the UK stock market that look seriously undervalued. And, you know, we've seen a bit of a bounce from the vaccine and it wouldn't surprise me certain shares, you know, travel related shares could go on to have another big bounce if we, you know, get out the other side of this virus. I can see a bounce back. Whether that is the you know whether whether that leads makes them sustainable growth stocks i'm not i'm not so sure okay well thanks well there'll certainly be plenty to talk about in the in the weeks ahead as uh hopefully we 
do get uh, some good news and uh, some companies do re-rate, but uh, possibly it's going to be, well, I think a lot of people know it's uh, it's going to be a hard winter for the UK. But anyway, thank you very much, Phil, for your time this morning and uh, chat to you again soon. And for listeners, uh, you can read more of Phil's insights in uh, in his alpha report, which will be out later on Friday today. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.